Greetings to everyone. It is the weekend of Sunday, July the 4th, and a very happy Independence Day to all of you and to all of yours. We continue looking at Hebrews today, and hopefully um, we look at independence, true independence. You see, Hebrews is the book that distinguishes clearly between the shell of Christianity and the real meat of it. And it helps us to see the difference between shadow and substance, the picture and reality. Many believers, many followers of Christ, according to the book of Hebrews, concern themselves with the externals of a life in Christ and actually miss completely the dynamic, radical, revolutionary concepts of it. Jesus did not say, you will know the rules and be bound by them. What he said was, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. That's John 8, 32. And the author of Hebrews declares that Christianity is not just a set of rules. Christianity is not something we do for our country, our city, our home, ourselves, or our God. Christianity is what God does in us and for us. Hebrews contrasts the new arrangement for living with the old basis of trying to keep the rules. We, certainly I, lean very strongly toward rule-keeping. Someone has likened humanity to a man who fell down a well. And when he cried out for help, a passerby, hearing his cries, leaned over the well and asked him what he wanted. And the man said he wanted to get out. The fellow thought for a moment and finally took out a piece of paper, wrote something on it, and dropped it down into the well. When the man picked it up, he read, The Ten Rules on how to keep out of wells. It's been suggested in Hebrews that this is what the law has been to us. It's a set of rules on how to keep out of wells after we've actually fallen in. And in lots of ways, this is accurate. But the real problem is that humanity doesn't know that we've even fallen in a well. We think that we're made to live in wells, and therefore we just don't understand why we're so unhappy in them. The coming of the law, the Ten Commandments, has made us realize our plight, but it still can't help us out. This is, this is what the author of Hebrews is telling us. They are saying that Jesus Christ is a rope that's dropped into the well. And actually, even more than that, he is a winch to pull us out. As you see, we can't pull ourselves up. He's also a guide to keep us from falling in any more wells after we get out. And in this wonderful way the tabernacle in the wilderness with its regulations and sacrifices was a really marvelous picture of the work of Jesus Christ and this new arrangement for living which would be available to men in Jesus but but only up to a point it, it was both a comparison and a contrast both like it and unlike it as well any picture is I carry a photo of my wife Amy in my wallet and in particular, when I'm away from home, I, I love to look at it. it. It warms my heart. But it's very inadequate. You see, it's, it's not Amy. I can look at the picture, but I can't have a conversation with it. I cannot laugh together with it. I can't drink coffee with it, at least not very adequately. Though it is an accurate representation of the real thing, it's a far cry from it. And this is what Hebrews stresses in the section before us, 
the author concludes their explanation of the new arrangement for living in Jesus Christ by listing for us the advantages in contrast to the picture of the tabernacle. So we pick up with Hebrews 9, 24 to 28, reading from the NIV. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself, just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. The old system with its regulations and rituals and sacrifices was limited to, to one particular place, the tabernacle, inc including the sanctuary made by hands, i.e. The, the, the Holy of Holies. But the writer says in Jesus, a new arrangement has come, which is beyond space. It's not limited to space. It is, it is heaven. And, and we've already suggested in this series that Heaven is the realm of the spirit. It is a new dimension of life. It is, it is the inner person. You know, and some have been troubled by this and have wondered if I no longer believe that heaven is a place. Yes, heaven is a place, for the spirit can be related to a place. Our spirits dwell in bodies, so they are limited constantly to space. But the idea of heaven in the scriptures is not primarily that of a place. We, we distort it when we limit it to place as in the concept of heaven is off in space somewhere, and when we die, we go to heaven by being transported. But scripture reveals here that when Jesus Christ makes the spirit alive within us, he then brings heaven into the soul, into the heart. And there, there's an old hymn that catches the idea exactly. Since Christ my soul set from sin set free, this world has been a heaven to me, and mid earth's sorrows and its woes, tis heaven my Jesus here to know. The new dimension of living is heaven here on earth. It is, it is this that makes it possible for Paul to write to the Ephesians and say, you are now seated with Christ in the heavenlies. That's chapter 2, verse 6. Heaven is in our heart because Jesus is there. It is God who makes heaven heaven. Heaven is this new dimension of life in the spirit. When I die and quote unquote, go to heaven, I enter into this relationship in, in a new and greater way than, than I've experienced in the body. And it will certainly involve the concept of place because we will have resurrection bodies. And there must be some place for them to operate. And, and wherever that place is, is heaven. And if we grasp this concept, we, we will see that the writer is indicating here that Jesus's work for us, for me, is never hindered because of where I am, because he is in me. Therefore, he appears before the presence of God on my behalf within me. That's hard to get, I get, but this is the biblical truth. That work is going on all the time, unceasingly, unendingly for me, within me. So wherever I am, it is available to me. This is the point that the writer of Hebrews is making. Well, then they point out that the old system required 
this endless repetition of sacrifice. The effect of these sacrifices, well, it never lasted very long. See, a person had to bring a fresh sacrifice every time they had sinned. And once a year, the whole nation had to offer the same sacrifice year after year. And the old arrangement required repetition. But the new arrangement is beyond time as well as beyond space. The cross of Jesus Christ is a contemporary sacrifice. It was offered at one point in history. But the effect of it, the results and the blessings of it are available at any time, forward or backward from the point of history. So the Old Testament saints could have as much of Jesus as we can, and and all that he was in his sacrifice was as fully available to them by faith as it is to us by faith. He'll live on this side of the cross. This means the cross works as well in the 21st century as it did in the first century, and that it It judges my pride and evil as relentlessly after I have been a Christian for 30 years as it does when I first came to Jesus. It's a contemporary event. And so no no amount of penance or remorse on my part can ever add anything to it. It is always effective because it is timeless. What an amazing advantage this is over the old system. And then thirdly, the new arrangement is beyond judgment as well as beyond time and space. See, in the tabernacle, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies once a year, bearing with him, bringing with him the blood of of a lamb. And before he entered on that day, he he stripped off his garments, this beauty and glory, and clothed himself with this very simple white robe. He took the the blood of a lamb in this basin, went into the Holy, Holy of Holies while the people waited with fear and trembling outside, wondering if the sacrifice would be acceptable before God. If it was not, the whole nation would be wiped out because when the high priest went in, he was facing the judgment of God. And by this eloquent way, God was saying to those people that judgment awaits humanity when we die. As the writer points out here, it is, it is appointed once for men to die, and after that comes judgment. But when the high priest came out again, he did not appear in this this simple white robe. Before he came out again to the people, he dressed himself in his robes of beauty and glory once again and came out to meet with, with this rejoicing, thanksgiving on the part of the people. You see, that was a picture, the writer says, of what is true in the reality that Jesus represents. Jesus has entered by death, into the realm of our spirit, into the human heart, into the inner life of humanity. And therefore, he is now invisible to the world. They don't see him. But when he appears visibly again, it will not be to judge the world. The cross has already done that. But it will be to establish a time of peace and of glory on the earth, which we call the golden age, the millennium. And for the believer, for the follower of Christ, this judgment is already passed. And in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit, we live already in the age of peace. The judgment that we must face when we die has already been faced when we die to Christ. The judgment has been poured out on Him. Prairie fires were terrible threats to pioneers who once crossed the plains of our great nation in their covered wagons. Oftentimes, these fires would burn for miles and miles, threatening everything in their path. And when they would see such a fire coming toward them, driven before the wind, they would 
they, they had this device they would use to protect themselves. They would simply light another fire and the wind would catch it up and drive it on beyond them. And then they would get in the burned over place. And when the fire coming toward them reached it, well, it found nothing to burn and it went out. See, God is saying very plainly that the cross of Jesus Christ is such a burned over place that those who trust in it and rest in the judgment that has already been put on it have no other judgment to face. That is why Paul can write with such triumph and victory in Romans 8, therefore is there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. You see, in the realm of the Holy Spirit, we have already entered into triumph and glory. We have already been forgiven everything. So we now need to acknowledge wrong, confess it, and the moment that we do, forgiveness is already ours. We only have to say thank you for it and take it. Have we, have we found this? Have we discovered this? What, what a release from this nagging pressure and this distress that's caused by a guilty conscience. Well, now the question comes, has this kind of life been, been demonstrated? And the next section of Scripture shows us the demonstration of this new arrangement in Jesus. It, it can be seen both in shadowy outline in the tabernacle and in the reality of Jesus himself. In the tabernacle, we can see the divine design. And we pick up with Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1 through 4, again in the NIV. Christ's sacrifice once for all. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices, repeatedly, endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But, this, but those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. There is limitation all throughout this. There, there's, there is a lot these things cannot portray because they are not the reality. They are merely pictures, shadows of reality. The blood of bulls and goats is not the blood of Jesus, so it cannot take away sin. But through this limitation, there is one unchanging message that's being pounded out. Every sacrifice of the old way declared it. Every offering told the same story it was burned in blood and smoke into every heart that was open and listening and that message was that the 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 essential quality in a god-approved life is that one be willing to lay that life down every sacrifice was a life laid down and by it god is saying this is the quality of life that pleases him a life that's laid down self-giving not self loving. There's a twisted form of following Jesus that says, in effect, I believe that Jesus died on the cross in order that I might be free to live for myself, that, that he bore all the pain and suffering. Therefore, there's nothing like that for me to bear at all. And if I'm asked to endure pain or difficulty or heartache, something is wrong because Jesus bore all that before me. That's a distorted form of Christian faith. 
The truth is that Jesus died in order that I might be free to die with him. And he rose again in order that I might be privileged to rise with him. This is a timeless thing. It goes on all the time. We must always be doing this. We'll never know the rising without the dying. And that's the secret of of a life in Jesus. Unless we're willing to lay down ourselves, our lives, we can never have them back again. Isn't that what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, 39? Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. You see, we can never save our life until we're willing to lay it down. But the wonderful thing is, if we are continually dying with him, we shall also be continually rising with him. You see, if in our hearts there's, there's a readiness to give ourselves on his behalf and in the service to others, we find that in that dying, we, we're also rising, living again. It, life takes on a new dimension. That's the great secret. In the Old Testament sacrifices taught that there had to be a death. But that was the teaching of the shadow the picture, the play. Now we see it in the living substance, in the, in the life, in the flesh of Jesus himself. The Old Testament revealed this design, this divine design. But in Jesus, we, we push on to see the divine desire. So we pick up Hebrews 10, 5 through 10, again, the NIV. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. And then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Here is what God really wanted. God God never cared for, for the rivers of blood that flowed on Jewish altars. He did not delight in, the, in these. He, he had no interest in them except what, that they taught something. Well, then, what, what was he after? What, what these sacrifices pointed to is that a human body in which there was a human will which continually chose to depend on the living God indwelling to obey a written word. That was what he was after. That was what God wanted. And when Christ came in the womb of the virgin, a human body was being formed, a body with nerve and muscle and sinews and hair and eyes and feet and toenails and fingernails growing through all the stages that the normal human embryo goes through. And within that body was a human soul with the capacity to reason, to feel, and to choose a will, in other words. And that will in that human body never once acted on its own, never once took any step apart from the dependence on the Father who lived in it. And Jesus declared this over and over again in John 14, 10, the things that I do, I do not do for my, of myself, but the Father who dwells in me, he does them. The words that I speak are not my words. It is the Father who is speaking through me. He is saying them to you. 
There was a will which continually chose to rely on the Father to guide that life step by step in every experience and to meet everything that came with the strength of the indwelling of God. Now, that is the principle that God has been after all along. That is what he wants. He's not interested in ritual and candles and prayer books or beads and chanting and ceremony. What he wants is a heart that is his, a life that is his, and a body that is available to him. That is why Paul in Romans 12 says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. When Jesus acted on that principle, he allowed the direction of his life to come from the word of God. Every temptation he entered into, every problem that came his way, he referred back to what God had said. It is written. It is written. It is written. That program took him to the cross, calling him to to lay down his life. And by means of that sacrifice, we are free to now join him on this program, if you will, that is God's original intention for us, for mankind, for humanity. We see this in verse 10, back to Hebrews. And by that we will, believers, have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The word sanctified is, is widely misunderstood. It, I, I, I did not get this. It's usually looked on as some kind of religious deep clean, you know, that we pass through and come out holier and purer on the other side. But the word sanctified simply means to put to the proper intended use. That's all it means. We are all sanctifying, you are all sanctifying those chairs that you are seated on right now. And I'm sure you're beginning to think it's about time to end that sanctification and go on to the house. I am sanctifying this pulpit. I'm using it for what it was intended for. We sanctify our comb when we comb our hair. Sanctification simply means to put to the intended purpose. Now, this verse is simply declaring that when we adopt the same outlook as Jesus Christ, when in, when in dependence on him, we are ready to obey the word of God and woeful to, to the will of God, we fulfill our humanity. We are being used in the way that God intended us to be used. There's one simple mark of that which is unmistakable. We become content to lay down our life in order that the will of God would be done. I do not mean that we rush out to die. Laying down a life does not always mean dying. It means giving of ourselves, giving up for the moment something that we might desire to do. We are willing to feel inadequate in ourselves in order that we might always be adequate in him. Do you see what I'm talking about? This sounds hard and demanding, perhaps. But according to Scripture, it's not. Matthew 11.30 says, His yoke is easy and His burden is light. This is what God wants. This is what He's after. Not great cathedrals and beautiful buildings and ornate ritual and ceremony. God, God doesn't care for these. God wants lives, bodies, hearts that are here are His, available to work 
in the shop and in the office and in the street and in the schools and everywhere where people are that his life may be made visible in terms of that person and in that place. That's Christianity. In the closing section, the new arrangement and its sufficiency. Hebrews 10, 11 through 18. Again, the NIV. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when the priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who, be, who are being made holy. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. And then he adds, their sins and lawless acts, I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. One peculiarity of the old tabernacle was that it had no chairs. There was never a place for the priest to sit down. But when Jesus offered himself as a single sacrifice, he sat down. The writer says to wait until his enemies should be made his footstool. Why? Because the principle that he had demonstrated is all that it takes to get the job done. He does not need anything more. He has done all that is needed. Once this principle had begun in human history, it will never stop until it wins what God is after, until all the enemies of Jesus Christ become his footstool. And it is time to return again to establish his kingdom. There's a power in this principle that is quiet and yet relentless and irresistible. Where men and women are willing to lay down their lives, nothing can hinder them. Nothing can arrest this principle. Nothing can stop that. It has to win. That's why Jesus sat down. What else was there to do? It was finished. It is sufficient. It is adequate. It will win the prize. It will do the job. And when we have rested on all that Jesus has done for us, we have entered into a place of this provision of power. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. We can know in any situation what God wants done and expect him to do it through us. Even more than that, we enter into this perfect peace of, of the heart. There's no quarrel between us and God any longer, no argument. We, we are accepted in the beloved. And I will remember their sins no more. Now the writer says, when we come to this place, what could we possibly need? I'd like to close today by reading Hebrews 13, 20 through 21 again. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen, and God bless.